When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We have two stories for you today. The first, a retelling of Rip Van Winkle by Washington Irving. The second, a very short story called The American Boy by Theodore Roosevelt. At the foot of the Catskill Mountains lies a little village of great antiquity, having been founded long ago by the Dutch. And in one of these houses, there lived many years since while the country was yet a province of Great Britain, a simple, good-natured fellow by the name of Rip Van Winkle. Now the great error in Rip's composition was an aversion to all kinds of profitable labor. It could not be from want of perseverance, for he would sit on a wet rock with a rod as long and heavy as a tartar's lance and fish all day without a murmur, even though he would not be encouraged by a single nibble. He would carry a fowling piece on his shoulder for hours together, trudging through woods and swamps, and uphill and down, to shoot a few squirrels or wild pigeons. Or he would assist the children in the village in their sports, make their playthings, fly their kites, and shoot their marbles, and tell them long stories of ghosts and witches. Whenever he went dodging about the village, he was surrounded by a troop of them hanging on to his pants and clambering up his back. He would never refuse to assist a neighbor, even in the roughest toil, such as husking Indian corn or building stone fences. The women of the village, too, used to employ him to run their errands and to do such little odd jobs as their less obliging husbands would not do for them. In a word, Rip was ready to attend to anybody's business but his own. As to doing family duty and keeping his farm in order, he found it impossible. In fact, he declared it was of no use to work on his farm. It was the most pestilent little piece of ground in the whole country. Everything about it went wrong, and would go wrong, in spite of him. His fences were continually falling to pieces. His cow would go astray, or get among the cabbages. Weeds were sure to grow quicker in his fields than anywhere else. The rain always made a point of setting in just as he had some outdoor work to do. And so his estate had dwindled away under his management, acre by acre, until there was little more left than a mere patch of potatoes. His children, too, were as ragged and wild as if they belonged to nobody, and promised to inherit the habits with the old clothes of their father. Yes, Rip was one of those happy mortals who take the world easy, and would rather starve on a penny than work for a pound. If left to himself, he would have whistled his life away in perfect contentment, but his wife kept continually dinning in his ears about his idleness, his carelessness, and the ruin he was bringing on his family. Morning, noon, and night— her tongue was incessantly going. Rip had but one way of replying to lectures of that kind. He would shake his head 
cast up his eyes, take his gun in hand, and stroll away into the woods with his old dog, Wolf, where he could enjoy some peace and quiet. One day, on one such ramble with Wolf, he wandered far into the highest parts of the Catskills, shooting at squirrels and admiring the scenery. Before he knew it, the mountains began to throw their long blue shadows over the valleys. He saw it would be dark long before he could reach the village, and he heaved a heavy sigh when he thought of encountering the terrors of Dame Van Winkle. He was about to descend when he heard a strange, unearthly voice calling his name. Rip Van Winkle! Wolf bristled his back. Rip looked around but could see nothing but a crow winging its solitary flight across the mountain. He turned to descend again when he heard the same cry ringing through the still evening air. Rip Van Winkle! Rip Van Winkle! And suddenly he saw a strange figure toiling slowly up the rocks, bending under the weight of something he carried on his back. He was a short, square-built old fellow, with thick, bushy hair and a grizzled beard. He was dressed in the antique Dutch fashion, with a broad belt and buckles on his shoes, and big baggy breeches gathered in at the knees. He bore on his shoulder a stout keg that seemed full of liquor, and made signs for Rip to approach and assist him with the load. Rip complied with his usual alacrity and followed the old gnome, who spoke not a word, but clambered farther up a narrow gully. Deeper and deeper into the mountains they climbed, through a steep gorge. As they ascended, Rip every now and then heard long, rolling peals like distant thunder, although the sky was perfectly clear. At last they came to a sort of amphitheater, surrounded by boulders and cliffs, and here new wonders presented themselves, for on a level spot in the center was a company of short, bearded men, all dressed in the same quaint Dutch fashion, with broad belts and high-crowned hats with feathers, red stockings, and wooden shoes. They were playing at nine pins, and whenever the balls rolled along the green turf, they echoed along the mountains like rumbling peals of thunder. As Rip and his companion approached, they suddenly stopped their play, and stared at him with such statue-like gazes that his heart turned within him, and his knees knocked together. His companion now poured the keg's contents into cups, and made signs to Rip to wait among the company. As he did so, the little men drank, wiped their beards, and in silence returned to their game. By degrees, Rip's awe subsided. He even ventured to taste the beverage, which he found to have excellent flavor. He was naturally a thirsty soul, and was soon tempted to try some more. One taste provoked another. He repeated his visits to the keg so often that at length his senses were overpowered. His eyes swam in his head, his head gradually declined, and he sank snoring upon the turf. It was a bright, sunny morning when he woke. The birds were hopping and twittering among the bushes, and an eagle was wheeling aloft, breasting the pure mountain breeze. There was no sign of the strange little man with the keg of liquor, or the woe-begone party at ninepins. Surely, thought Rip, I have not slept here all night. He whistled for Wolf, but the dog had disappeared. He looked around for his gun, but in place of his well-oiled weapon, he found a rusty, worm-eaten old firelock, and he was vexed to think that the little men of the mountain must have stolen his gun, and perhaps his dog too, and left him this sorry exchange. As he rose to walk, he found himself stiff in the joints. These mountains just don't agree with me, he thought. With some difficulty, he started down the mountainside, through the gorge he and his companion had ascended the previous evening. He was astonished to find that, 
whereas it had been dry as a bone before. A mountain stream now foamed through its bottom, leaping from rock to rock. I must have come up a different way, thought Rip. This can't be right. But at last he reached the village. As he approached, he grew bewildered, for the place was greatly altered. There were houses and streets he had never seen before. Strange names were over the doors, and unfamiliar faces at the windows. Everything was strange. He met a number of people he did not know, which surprised him, for he thought himself acquainted with everyone in the country round. Their dress, too, was of a strange fashion. They all stared at him, and invariably stroked their chins when they saw him, which caused Rip to do the same. When, to his astonishment, he found his beard had grown a foot long. A troop of children gathered at his heels, hooting after him and pointing at his beard. He made his way to his own house and could not believe his eyes. It had gone to decay, the roof fallen in, the windows shattered, and the doors off the hinges. He called for his wife and children. The lonely chambers rang for a moment with his voice, and then all again was silence. He hurried to his old resort, the village inn, but it too was changed. The sign of King George was still there, under which he had smoked many a peaceful pipe. But the king's coat had been changed from red to blue. The head was decorated with a cocked hat instead of a crown, and the legend underneath now read, General Washington. A crowd of people was there, as usual, but Rip knew none of them, and they were talking about things which meant nothing to his poor, addled brain. Rights of citizens, elections, liberty, Bunker Hill. They gazed with some curiosity at Rip and his long, grizzled beard, and at length crowded round him, and asked whom he was seeking. "'Where's Nicholas Vedder?' inquired Rip. "'Why, Nicholas Vedder, he's dead and gone these sixteen years. "'Where's Brother Brom Dutcher? "'He went up to the army and never came back. "'Where's Van Brommel, the schoolmaster? "'He went up to the wars, too. "'He was a great militia general, and he's now in Congress.' "'Rip's heart died away at hearing these sad changes, "'and it dawned on him that he must have been asleep for years and years. "'But he cried out in despair.' "'Does nobody here know Rip Van Winkle?' "'Oh, Rip Van Winkle!' exclaimed two or three. "'Oh, to be sure, that's Rip Van Winkle yonder, leaning against the tree.' And to his amazement he saw a precise counterpart of himself, just as he had been on the day he went up the mountain, apparently as lazy and certainly as ragged. It was his own son. His daughter was there, too. She had married a stout, "'Cheery farmer, whom Rip recognized as one of the urchins who used to climb on his back. "'But his wife had long passed away. "'Rip's children gave him a home, and he became the most popular old man in the village. "'He took his place once more on the bench at the inn door, "'and people never grew tired of hearing him tell a strange story of how he slept his life away. "'And who were the strange company of little gnomes who played at bowling that long-ago evening when Rip fell asleep?' It is said they were the spirits of the crew of old Henry Hudson, who first explored that region, and gave his name to its great river and valley. And even to this day, when the thunderstorm of a summer afternoon rolls across the Catskill Mountains, people say, it's just old Henry and his fellows at their game of nine pins again. We'll return with our second story, The American Boy, by Theodore Roosevelt, right after these sponsor messages. And now, The American Boy, by Theodore Roosevelt. 
Many boys and young men want everyone to think they're tough. Well, here's the right kind of toughness. This old-fashioned essay with its old-fashioned language expresses sentiments much in need today. It was written by one of our toughest presidents. Of course, what we have a right to expect of the American boy is that he shall turn out to be a good American man. Now, the chances are strong that he won't be much of a man unless he's a good deal of a boy. He must not be a coward or a weakling, a bully, a shirk, or a prig. He must work hard and play hard. He must be clean-minded and clean-lived and able to hold his own under all circumstances and against all comers. It is only on these conditions that he will grow into the kind of American man of whom America can be really proud. There is no need for a boy to preach about his own good conduct and virtue. If he does, he will make himself offensive and ridiculous. But there is urgent need that he should practice decency, that he should be clean and straight, honest and truthful, gentle and tender, as well as brave. If he can once get to a proper understanding of things, he will have a far more hearty contempt for a boy who has begun a course of feeble dissipation, or who is untruthful, or mean, or dishonest, or cruel, than this boy and his fellows can possibly, in return, feel for him. The very fact that the boy should be manly and able to hold his own, that he should be ashamed to submit to bullying without instant retaliation, should in return make him abhor any form of bullying, cruelty, or brutality. The boy can best become a good man by being a good boy. Not a goody-goody boy, but just a plain good boy. I do not mean that he must love only the negative virtues. I mean he must love the positive virtues also. Good, in the largest sense, should include whatever is fine, straightforward, clean, brave, and manly. The best boys I know, the best men I know, are good at their studies or their business, fearless and stalwart, hated and feared by all that is wicked and depraved, incapable of submitting to wrongdoing, and equally incapable of being aught but tender to the weak and helpless. A healthy-minded boy should feel hearty contempt for the coward, and even more hearty indignation for the boy who bullies girls or small boys, or tortures animals. One prime reason for abhorring cowards is because every good boy should have it in him to thrash the objectionable boy as the need arises. Of course, the effect that a thoroughly manly, thoroughly straight and upright boy can have upon the companions of his own age, and upon those who are younger, is incalculable. If he is not thoroughly manly, then they will not respect him, and his good qualities will count but for little. Well, of course, if he is mean, cruel, or wicked, then his physical strength and force of mind merely make him so much the more objectionable a member of society. He cannot do good work if he is not strong and does not try with his whole heart and soul to count in any contest, and his strength will be a curse to himself and to everyone else if he does not have thorough command over himself and over his own evil passions, and if he does not use his strength on the side of decency, justice, and fair dealing. In short, in life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard, don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. Hope you enjoyed these two short stories from two very famous authors. The first, who was named after a president of the United States, and the second, who was a president of the United States. Thanks for joining us. We do appreciate reviews, and we have some recent reviews to share with you. Love this podcast. Five stars. John is a fantastic reader. Really great podcaster. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. 
And this one, A Good Friend Reads to You. Five stars. This podcast reminds me of settling down to have a good friend read a story with you, reading some classic short stories, relaxing, and appreciating good writing. It's quite enjoyable. That one from Julie Cramp, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Podcast is a Gem, five stars. This podcast is a gem because the narration is pleasing, the sound quality is excellent, and the selection of stories is well curated. Highly rated. That one from Backwards, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for taking the time to send us these reviews. As you well know, they're greatly, greatly appreciated. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We now bring new stories every Wednesday and Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. So until our next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.